You know, the mainstream feminist movement has made serious, serious mistakes. You know, I often point out that when, when I wrote my, um, when I wrote a book that was published in 1981 called Women, Race, and Class, uh, everybody started referring to me as a feminist. And my response was, I'm not a feminist. You know, I'm a black revolutionary. <laughs> because I didn't see how the two had anything to do with each other. Um, but I realized that I was talking about a certain kind of feminism, a bourgeois feminism, uh, uh, a feminism that is still, unfortunately, um, yeah, white, white bourgeois feminism, which is unfortunately uh, the, the most represented feminism today, and most people think of that as feminism. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Yeah, here. no, no, trust um, me. When we had the Medicare for All episode, I was like raging, but I was also like, oh, I don't want to get caught. Okay, so that okay. Was you. okay. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't put it together that was you. Yeah. And yes, I remember you saying like, I don't think I'll get in trouble for talking about this. But... Nobody I work with actually, you know. Yeah. Listens to this? No. They, mm. they don't even know I have a podcast for the most part. If they did, I would be so screwed because half of my podcast is like, daddy jokes and like all sorts of shit like we're not we don't hold back right yeah. we're trying to be pro you know sex positive and like also yeah. just you know yeah which is your podcast oh it's mine is just a one on like genre fiction from the feminine perspective okay so what, what's it called it's called meta machina meta machina okay yeah. rub <laughs> all right oh, and um for, for lack of a more of a cleverer way to get started, welcome everyone. You're listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I am your host, Jeremy. Joined once again on a yet another sweltering Portland evening. Heat waves do not go good in cities that do not have uh, air conditioning and are currently besieged by um, air <laughs> lung-threatening levels of uh, poor air quality in the uh, in the air. So it's been a it's been a real fun summer, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, we gathered uh, s some uh, new friends and co-hosts here to our scenic basement recording studios to talk about a little subject called socialist feminism. Uh, new friends and co-hosts, could you please introduce yourself to the viewing audience? Uh, who wants to go first? Uh, my name is Shannon Schreckengost. I am a member of the Portland chapter here in the Democratic Socialist of America. Uh, within the DSA, I am a part of the Socialist Feminist Caucus, as well as a mobilizer coordinator. Hi, I'm uh, Nikki Milano. I'm an organizer with Disability Art and Culture Project. I also work with the uh, Socialist Feminist Caucus of DSA. Hi, my name is Becca Edwards, and I'm with the DSA's Medicare for All Caucus, and organize both of them, as well as the Socialist Feminist Caucus. I'm the sometime co-host, Natasha. 
a member of DSA, but not part of a caucus yet. Um, and I run my own podcast, Meta Machina. Excellent. Uh, thank you all for joining me here today and um, talk about stuff that I, one of the other kind of in, in a series of, I guess, just blatant leftist theory podcasts that we've been doing lately. Um, wanted to do, yeah, just a basic one-on-one on, you know, explanation of what socialist feminism actually is and entails and how it is very different from a lot of, you know, I just say a lot of, uh, I want to say like a lot of shit you see on t- uh, online, but a lot of more, um, I don't know, what, grievous abuses of the term. A feminism? A feminism, feminism, yeah, yeah. And so I uh, asked you all to join me and to at least to inform my dumbass as to uh, uh, what's the what is. So uh, can we start with, uh, I guess, Nikki, if you want to go first or whoever wants to go first, just to do a basic, like, can anyone join in at least a, a basic explainer? as to what socialist socialist feminism actually is uh you would you like to go or yeah sure so um yeah socialist feminism you know i think like a big part of it obviously in the name is that it's a feminism that is decidedly anti-capitalist um you know what we would might refer to as more like a liberal feminism you know tends to be more focused narrowly on just this kind of human rights discourse on the idea of women ascending to positions of power within our current capitalist structures, right? Women becoming heads of corporations, becoming politicians in our neoliberal state and so on. Um, People who want to criminalize sex work, for example, and think that that's liberating women from the horrors of the sex industry, right? Um, And socialist feminism is against that. Socialist feminism is about a feminism that's really for everyone, a feminism that's grounded in the experience of working class women, which is the majority of women in the world. Um, And it just acknowledges that when we're talking about things like patriarchy, white supremacy, you know, these things are co-constitutive of capitalism, right? You can't separate these things. Um, You know, it kind of some what liberal feminists tend to kind of talk about patriarchy is kind of almost being an inherited system from the past right like we had this whole old thing older societies um we're still kind of getting through this eventually we're just going to keep going forward and progress through this and men and women will be equal whatever um but as socialist feminists we kind of recognize that the forms that patriarchy takes in capitalism is specific to capitalism and is linked intrinsically to capitalism and we can't really just separate those things out in our struggles. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Thank you for the th- thank you for the introduction. Um, uh, any uh, commentary? Anyone have anything to add? Or that's? I think that's a very succinct description of it. I think that understanding that the system of capitalism is what is perpetuating women's oppression is really important, especially from a historical basis. You know. Um, I Jeremy was able to lend me Caliban and the Witch, which um, I remember being introduced to because I was listening to Season of the Bitch podcast, which is the socialist feminist podcast, in my opinion. They're doing an excellent, excellent job with it. Yep. And uh, when reading that book and understanding the historical context for how capitalism enabled the oppression of women and people of color, you get much more of this larger perspective that I think goes against what we have been raised with with second wave feminism and, and and basically fighting this this again this this obscure idea of the patriarchy as being sort of separated from it so i highly recommend that book and i highly recommend just understanding that 
we're never going to get past it unless we become socialists. <laughs> I think it's like a, it's opposite of the lean in feminism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's Absolutely. not the idea that you can just um, push harder in the same system in order to, to get your rights that you have to change the system. Um, so definitely, definitely the focus on working class women versus women like rising up into power and the classism that's there. I think that's integral to why it doesn't work. Um, why corporate feminism, liberal feminism doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. We'll be, just, we'll be, you know, distinct on that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think in this, um, this goes alongside with our recent episode that we re-recorded on the differences between, from an ideological standpoint, between um, liberalism and socialism. Uh, to, uh, to shed a little bit more light of, can we um, talk about, like, the, I think I want, to, I want to talk about like, the differences in it between, like, you know, socialist feminism versus, you know, liberal or corporate or, um, or what they call carceral feminism. Uh, would anyone like to take a whack at that? Could you provide an explanation for carceral feminism? I don't know if many people would be familiar with that term. Inclusion is not enough. Diversity is not enough. And as a matter of fact, we do not wish to be included in a racist society. If we say, if we say no to heteropatriarchy, then we do not want to be assimilated into a misogynist and heteropatriarchal society. If we say no to poverty, we do not want to be contained by a capitalist structure that values profits more than human beings. If we recognize that those who wanted to solve the problem of slavery by creating more humane forms of slavery were employing the logic of racism we say that those who call for police reform and prison reform while retaining the racist structures as they pretend to address the problems of racism, that they are absolutely wrong. And this is why we say no to carceral feminism and yes to abolition feminism. Anyone? Sure. Yeah. So when we're talking about carceral feminism, um, we're talking about a feminism that is very much intertwined with the prison industrial complex. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about criminalization of sex work, for example. That's a good example of carceral feminism, right? Um, Or just like a feminism that depends on the idea that, you know, we're going to have this legal system that's going to punish people and that's how we're going to get equality for women or whatever, whatever is that we're just going to have enough men are just going to get punished in jail or whatever. And like, that's gonna, gonna lead us there. But we know that the system as it exists is incredibly racist, right? Um, we know that it really primarily targets working class communities. We know that that system's not going to serve us as socialist feminists. We know that. Um, so yeah, that's basically the carceral feminism. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think it's difficult, you know, because I think like, obviously when we're, when we're thinking about carceral feminism, I, I can understand the appeal from a perspective, you know, when people think about like, somebody committing acts of sexual violence or something, right? Like, somebody who has experienced that would rightfully want to see justice served in that way. But, you know, I think the critique that the critique there is that the way the system currently works, we know that it doesn't actually no. serve women who are survivors of mm-hmm. rape. We know that 
it that many of these cops themselves are rapists. Um, and so we know that if we're only depending on that system to try and facilitate justice for us, we're not actually going to get justice for our communities, for ourselves, for our bodies. Um, that's just not going to work for us. You reminded me of um, the reason why uh, people who have who are charged with domestic violence and have like domestic char- violence charges against them are still able to own firearms is because so many of them are police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Absolutely. like you're right. The system is is not in anyone's favor who is being oppressed in that. Yeah, it's like, funny how that works. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I wonder why. Huh? Yeah, that works as a pretty uh, decent like, an intro to it. Uh, can we talk about like, some of the? I think, <laughs> yeah, let's let's yeah, let us switch from theory to praxis, shall we? Can we talk about s- some of the stuff that we that's you know like say for example the socialist feminist caucus of DSA has been working on like a couple uh, a couple of the projects going on uh, in this very town this very year. Uh, sure, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that we've been working on here is a project that the Pittsburgh Social Feminist Caucus actually started and a lot of other chapters have kind of taken this on as a as a project. Um the Pittsburgh uh Socialist Feminist Caucus are created a website that exposed the fake clinics, pregnancy crisis uh centers and um pregnancy clinics that are in the areas. Uh Pittsburgh has an extremely terrible number of very intrusive and um manipulative clinics so to them it was an even bigger deal to really focus on this so they created a website called exposed fake clinics pgh.com i believe and it's fantastic it basically gives you an introduction to what a crisis pregnancy clinic is uh, what it means to be a fake clinic what signs to look out for which ones are in the area calling them out by name and um also pointing people to where they can actually get abortions or funding for abortions in the area and it really took the Pittsburgh crisis pregnancy clinics by surprise. You know, they weren't expecting all these newspapers to start calling them and say, what do you think about this website? Um, and they weren't prepared for it. And, and it's great because it, it's just a start of something that they've been doing, especially there, of, of calling out um, places that are providing wrongful health information. And, uh, you know, this is just one way that it can like good information about actual abortions and actual, you know, reproductive health information can be uh, disseminated because, you know, as this gets more press, the website ranks higher in in search results when people are searching for information. Like, that will come up first. Yeah. Yeah. Searching under duress. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's very crucial. You know, Uh, I think... And I, I know I know that like we're working on something similar here. I know there's a number of other chapters around the nation that are working on a uh, similar project. So hopefully we'll get a number of them out all throughout the all throughout the states. Yes, yeah, so far this year it's really been kind of the year of reproductive justice for the Portland chapter of the uh, the DSA's Socialist Feminist Caucus. Um, we also participated in a national abortion access bullathon mm-hmm. um, with our awesome team, the Battleship Poten Pin. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> um, and we raised some, I think it was like eighteen hundred bucks. I think we were just shy of t- about two grand for abortion access and abortion services in the end. Um, which for our first year out in a national event, I'm stoked by. And I think nationally, the fundraiser raised over two million. 
end. So I'm really proud we were a part of that. Um, and then we're also currently working on putting together a um, discussion panel slash workshop that's going to be looking at the interconnectivity between reproductive justice in light of Measure uh, 106, which is mm -hmm. um, going to be on the ballot in November here in Oregon. And that is a, um, a, a bill that is looking to remove uh, the ability for abortion providers to receive public funding for that, those services. Um, so that would potentially very greatly limit abortion access for um, Oregonians. Uh, and then additionally, that is really looking at how we can work in partnership with the Medicare for All efforts within our chapter um, and, and regionally and see how we can really get out some information about, about Measure 106. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also exploring different ways that in light of um, uh, FOSTA and SESTA, we can support local sex workers. So I'm pleased that we've had uh, a number of local sex workers um, kind of come, come to our chapter and engage in the Feminist Caucus. And I'm really excited to continue that discussion and hear from them what we can do to support them and support the yeah. community. Awesome. Yeah, the um, that is the thing about the um, the those, uh, the crisis pregnancy centers is that yeah they we shit there is like what five between five and ten of them around here at least in like Port in Portland Metro alone. I just remember because mm -hmm. I've never seen the signs from because there there used to be one that was very prominently located at like between on like what eighth like either eighth or ninth between Bro uh, Broadway and Widler that one is which has fortunately been shuttered by now. Well, and this is why, you know, our feminism is intersectional and socialist because, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the signs and banners and billboards that are up right now are those that are in Spanish or those that are, um, you know, in, in Catholic churches or those that are definitely targeting people that think that that might be their only option or maybe believe that that might be their only option. And that that's a very specific form of, of targeting. And, and I think we need to be aware of that. Um, because we might not see them in in certain areas, but we're going to see them in areas where, you know, people are more likely to to be in a in a in a, a very concerned state, like be in a situation where they might have to, um, like, for instance, if a crisis crisis pregnancy center um, gives them wrong information or like delays them, like the cost of abortion can like really skyrocket. So it could be a real impairment on what they're able what they're paying or what they're able to pay. What do um, can someone shed like what 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 do these centers actually look like? Because I'm trying to think of. I've seen a number that kind of look like these like comfy home setups, right? Um, and so it really, I would assume inside, I haven't been inside, but have a really homey feel. And then I've also seen some others. I think there's one down in like the Sunnyside Clackamas area that is like a kind of in like a strip mall setup. It's like a little business office complex. So I think you see everything from more of that like um, almost corporatized faux medical look to like, oh, that, you know, really inviting warm space mm -hmm. where, you know, you can talk about your options and get that care. So um, yeah, the, I mean, looking at one right now, I think this is the exact one. Jeremy just pulled up a picture down in Clackamas that I was thinking of. And I mean, it looks like it would be right next to like a spirit Halloween store. So it's just a, <laughs> it's just like a corporate pop-up faux, faux abortion clinic. Yeah. And do we understand who's funding these currently? I'm yeah. assuming it's probably, of course, religious right and conservative movements. But yeah, that's so sketchy. Oh, yeah, that's definitely it like a bunch of Christian organizations or Catholic churches and um, main, mainly it's, it's that I mean they really are trying to get other funding if, as well like they'd love to get state funding and so forth so that's like also a concern to make sure they don't get anything like that 
Um, but for now, it's just like donations from churches. And it's just so tricky. Like, n- not not what they're doing is not tricky. It's just like trying to talk to people about it who come from that background. Because I come from that background. Like, I come from a conservative, very Christian, pro-life background. And, um, like, there's just, it's so, it's just so much heart into it. That's a very tricky conversation to have. It's not, it's not as often it's like, oh, taxation or like how, how money should work. It's like the idea of life and death. So it's like, okay, like we need to, like, that's important to have those conversations. Not right now, obviously, because yeah. like they're literally trying to get rid of funding. But like, how do you convince people to come over to the other side is always something I'm thinking about. That's a very difficult conversation argumentation to have because it is such a personal moral issue for so many people um i i always think that there's some good ideas in terms of reaching out to people because most people that will support it eventually are people that just have never really had a personal experience with it or if they have then they've been completely delusional about it you know we're not gonna talk about those people because you know we know all the senators that are conservative that have paid off that kind of stuff um but we're talking to women directly and that's who really we should be talking to because if you know that your sister or your daughter had to go through one of those crises it becomes again the personal issue becomes personal for you to the point where you can empathize with that situation so right but it's difficult to get there becca let's go secret shop a pregnancy crisis center see what that's like <laughs> okay i'm actually kind of curious to be honest with you yeah. I, I really want to know i mean i'm just I, i'm very curious like how immediate they're kind of trying to push their agenda or if they even uh-huh. dress it up as a medical experience first and foremost or if they really just want to sit down and counsel I, i'm i really am very curious and i would be intrigued to honestly try to go in secret shop and just be like oh no i don't want an actual examination Never i just want to yeah. talk about my options and just Whatever. see what they have to say yeah. See what kind of pamphlets they're pushing. It's like yeah, it's like it's like going undercover at the uh, at the Scientology Center. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there's at least five or six of them around. Some just yeah. literally called Pregnancy Resource Center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a name that's been used around here. That specific phrase, like Pregnancy Resource Center, and so like they try to get off that it's not a service, like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a resource, right? So it's information. Yeah, and that's what they push. They're like, if you want more information, come in. We'll talk to you. And I think there is some legitimacy to targeting if there are, are med- medical practitioners in those centers, which I don't know for sure if they are or mm-hmm. not. But if there are, their information is public, their medical licenses are run through the state, they should be exposed. I'm just going to say that. Like, it's absolutely necessary to put pressure on people that are performing these service, like not services, whatever this is really, that, you know, they have an obligation to the community because of how they're supported by it. So. Right. No, exactly. The pa- well, yeah, the paperwork exists. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. You were saying I would just guess also with uh, these centers that there is a crossover locally to those who are fighting to get this, you know, 106 on the, um, you know, up for vote. Because um, I know that was very much uh, kind of faith based um, Christian right groups that really mm-hmm. headed that effort. And I just wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there's a strong kind of common- commonality there. Mm-hmm. I think the most, what I've heard is the most, like, intense people who are pushing, um, like, Measure 106 are also the people who are working in the pregnancy resource centers or the people who are working in crisis pregnancy centers. So that's not that's not surprising if that's, like, their job and also their passion. Um, but the people probably who aren't as, like, 
caring or passionate about other people who are not working there. So like talking to those people. Yeah. Yeah. They are doing canvassing as well. So yeah, <laughs> we need to be just as. I think the last time Measure 106 also, I mean, separate um, from the crisis pregnancy centers, but Measure 106 is trying to get rid of the funding um, for abortions is I think it came up last in like 1988, but like it was also pushed from like a white perspective. So like that's another big thing of like we have to make sure this is intersectional and like not just about like white women and white people. Like this is not we've we've grown up a little bit Portland. Like we're going to move we're going to going to be working, socialist about this. Working on it. Yeah, yeah, working. Come on. Come on. Gosh. Come on Portland. Well, and just as you were saying in targeting communities uh you know having spanish speaking communities and and it's it is a racial justice issue so it's they're taking the the cultural context of these individuals and you know utilize weaponizing it in a way um and i find that extremely disturbing because if you do look back on the history of a lot of some of these things they are from almost a of course a racist racially motivated perspective right mm -hmm. they're wanting to control communities of color they're worried about population growth they're concerned about all of these really disgusting and horrible things but they're you know they're, they're trying to mask it under the guise of being um supportive and interested in taking care of the community which is absolutely not the case so you need to kind of sh expose that as well as being part of that so it is again a racial justice issue that we need to be concerned about important i don't know if you want to put the hashtag and just make it a hashtag in the like comment you know <laughs> down below in the summary of the youtube video maybe instead but like what you're saying it's totally about racial justice but I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard from the other side that um, the true racists are the Democrats yeah. because they kill millions of unborn babies a year. So and specifically, they're the racist ones because they're killing black babies. They want to do that. And so it's like, well, there's a racial tie regardless. And But what what is this? Like, what what avenue are you coming at if you're if that's what you believe? And yet you you're also the ones who are saying um we want our you know uh, a country for our white our white babies and our white children like definitely different people who are um pushing different angles of this debate different um angles of the argument but at the end of the day they're still in the up at the same place even if like <laughs> the arguments against what they say absolutely i mean that was so apparent in the the like weaponized effort in Texas to shut down abortion clinics and also hospitals that would perform abortions. And you just saw that it was very much a way of dividing communities. And basically, you obviously will have access to an abortion if you are, you know, in a middle class white family. They're going to find a way for you. But somebody that has to buy a bus ticket to cross state lines to go and get something taken care of or to pay out of pocket for it are not going to be able to do that. And then to be burdened with a child if you're not wanting one is, again, puts you in a socioeconomic status that's not going to be allow you to uh, have a, a decent life or to not rely on um, outside aid. So it's it's very, very difficult to not see it as being that uh, being there's always that subversive factor in the way that they're dealing with this is absolutely not from a place of the heart. It's a, from a place of a deep seated misunderstanding of people. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think, too, like, the hypocrisy of it comes out, and it's like, you know, like, these people say that they're pro-life, but, like, they don't care about, like, any of these kids once they're born. They don't care about supporting 
these mothers like in the u.s we don't have like government subsidized paid maternity leave like we don't have these things here so you can see where those priorities really go and it's like you know they don't care about like the kids being poisoned by lead in flint and elsewhere across the country right like it, we have children in cages <laughs> we absolutely we're just we're, we're just we've hit our we well we we haven't really hit our low but you know we're definitely the hypocrisy is there yeah so. no absolutely and i think you know you did a really important point of like tying it into class too and the way that these and that's a big part of socialist feminism too right is understand the way that class and gender these things structure each other and that plays such a huge role and obviously in the system we have women are always for have the majority of the kinds of labor the reproductive household labor raising children that labor is mostly forced onto women so when we're talking about you know when we're talking about abortions when we're talking about all these issues you know what we're really talking about we're talking about bodily autonomy we're talking about labor being forced onto people we're talking about people actually having less oper less economic opportunities less money less resources um these things are very much intimately tied together when we're talking about who can and cannot access an abortion like you said rich people will always be able to get it regardless of whatever views they have um it's really working class people poor women who are going to be the most impacted by this According to the National Network of Abortion Funds, the average cost for an abortion in the Pacific Northwest is $625. So that's that's pretty striking. And I think that's a big reason why um, this issue does tie in so strongly with kind of the socialist fight for health care for all. Hey, folks, this is Jeremy just popping in here. If you like what you're hearing, why not help us uh, make the show? support us for as little as a dollar a month donated through our patreon which is at patreon.com slash giving the mic every little bit helps thanks see can you can each of you if you, if you would uh like you know give a little bit like of your own history of what kind of like led you to what this awakening this radicalization this kind of the sense of uh, what was was in terms of like just po you know popular ways of of thinking about politics and 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 feminism and you know culture all that stuff. What you know what was was not enough. I mean you know like, if you if you like you know like to uh, tell your own, to tell uh, to tell your story if you will. Yeah, I guess I can think of a couple of things. Um, I mean, I think like there's lots of things that like radicalize us gradually throughout our lives. I mean, I think anyone who's grown up, who as a girl has experienced so much sexism from such a young age that like that in of itself is already plenty to justify these kinds of politics, right? But um, in my personal journey, I mean, it, it's it's been a lot of different things. Um, you know, one thing, my biological father, it was only my life for a short period of time. He was a cop. He was very abusive, very racist, sexist person. Um, and, you know, seeing the kind of stuff that him and his friends would get away with was definitely something that I noticed at a younger age. Um, you know, just dealing with different stuff. I was involved in sex work as a teenager, and that's definitely informed my perspective a lot. Um, but I think what first got me into actually going out to protests and stuff like that, um, I'm originally from California, from the Bay Area. And when Oscar Grant was murdered um, and the protests that happened around there, that was the first thing that kind of started really pushing me in the uh, direction of radical politics, started getting me out into the streets, going in different actions, kind of uh, 
exploring that more. And then I, I uh, continued doing that. I did different student organizing, um, different organizing around queer issues um, and solidarity with workers and prison abolitionist organizing has been a big part of uh, my life as well. Awesome. Thank you, Nikki. I was like, whoever wants to go next door, we can always, yeah. I'll just like shrugging over here like, yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, so I was, well, I grew up in a really rural environment in Washington State. Um, and my father died at a pretty young age. I was 13 when my dad died. And it was just me and my older sister and my mom. And we went from being, you know, kind of a quieter, you know, group of women a little bit under the thumb of my father to being some loud ass bitches. And it was really cool. I think I had the unique privilege of watching my mother go from, you know, really being a quiet woman who didn't think critically, you know, about uh, politics and things going on in our communities. She really just kind of did whatever my dad said on a vote level. I guarantee every year she just said, or every four years or whenever she, cause I'm sure she wasn't voting like, you know, midterms, but every year for the primary, just like, Oh, who do I vote for? And whoever he said, that's what she did. So watching her really come into her own person was a pretty interesting um, privilege. I think a lot of uh, children and teenagers and adult children don't, don't get to experience. So I'm, I'm pretty thankful for that experience. And it actually really empowered me and helped me find my voice. Um, and she's continued to do that. And I find it really inspiring, but at the same time, um, I know when I went away to college, pretty like stereotypical, you know, white liberal story there. But I went away to college and really started um, thinking more critically. It took me like leaving the island I grew up on and, you know, engaging in a more diverse community because where I come from really isn't um, to just see like, oh, there are like so many different ways of thinking and being. I just wasn't exposed to that as like simplistic as that sounds. I just wasn't exposed to it at a young age. Um, and so having that exposure and then also uh, taking a lot of um, you know, just women's and gender study classes. I was a women's and gender study minor in school and learning from a lot of really incredible queer professors. But I remember coming home and telling my mom that I was going to uh, do that, that women's and gender study minor. And she goes, oh, are you going to tell me next thing that you're a lesbian? And I was really taken aback at that time because I was really grappling with my own sexuality and realizing that, you know, I, I was a queer identified person and it and I was just so, so frustrated by that. So it's been really interesting, I think, for me and my family as we we're kind of like growing together from this really small town I don't want to say it's like oppressive but it's very homogenous one way of thinking and being a rural place provincial um, what's that provincial Yes, exactly. Very provincial. So um, I don't know, that was that definitely, you know, throughout that, you know, once again, kind of stereotypical, but, you know, very much um, radicalized a bit in college. And then I served two years of AmeriCorps after college. And um, my kind of call to serve, uh, I think in part really came out of my upbringing. I was a 4-H kid, which is all about service. And so I really wanted to continue to pay that forward through AmeriCorps service, which is serving for the man. I mean, you are a government employee or a government volunteer, I should say, in doing that, which was a really interesting experience, but that's what brought me to Portland. Um, and just seeing, you know, being in this mostly very progressive city or a city that likes to fly a progressive flag, you know, there's obviously things we can be working on, but you know, that really did open my eyes. And the first time I ever went out to, um, like a, a protest was actually a Planned Parenthood protest. It was one of the first times, or I wasn't protesting Planned Parenthood. I was standing <laughs> with Planned Parenthood, but there were people who were protesting. Um, and just that really invigorated me and was just like, damn, I want to, I want to show up for this stuff all the time. I was very much kind of someone who would sit at home through those things, being very frustrated by the state of, of uh, things, but not actually engaging and just seeing like, 
wow, you know, this is the power of the people showing up together uh, and taking a stand. I was just really like jacked up on that. And so now my service has really continued through different volunteerism and, and in uh, now the DSA. Um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Let us take a quick break and we'll be right back. Why is it that we Um, he sounds like a talk show host. Yeah. <laughs> and that's my uh, that's my Kentucky Fried movie joke that I uh, I always I always make. All right, to to continue our conversation, I think you're going through the rest of you like the you know would like to like I guess share your history or you know what what kind of brought you to this particular position or you know I guess talk about your journey if you will. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I briefly mentioned earlier that I came from a very conservative Christian background. And that would have been, that's true up until like 2014. Like, um, I feel kind of, I, I kind of got to strangely go from being a very hardcore neoconservative Republican to a leftist, like kind of just skip the whole liberal thing. So I don't know much about liberalism, but um, it's very interesting, like going from one hardcore in a sense to another. Um, but I grew up uh, with a very God-fearing um, family. We always went to church. We... Um, you know, always um, listen to talk radio. Um, <laughs> so the conservatism and the uh, Christianity were very tightly knit. Um, focus to, on the family. Well, focus on the family followed by Rush Limbaugh. You know, mm -hmm. like... <laughs> You've got the Gus Baker Show on and the first issue, but death Penalty, yes or no? Yes. 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 The chair. The chair. <laughs> In my opinion, you betcha. Yes. 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 The chair. <laughs> and they call me reactionary because I say criminals should be punished and ordinary folks like you and me should have the right to carry guns. Yes. Yes. <laughs> hey, Beavis. This dude is cool. <laughs> also tonight, music videos. Who makes these affronts to common decency? Where I come from, we have a word for garbage like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They suck. They suck. <laughs> but first, a commercial. Our lines are open. Give us a call. <laughs> this guy kicks ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's call him. $10. You know, wake up in the morning, listen to Laura Ingram, drive to, you know, drive to school, get back home, listen to Hugh Hewitt or Sean Hannity, like kind of the mix and then like go to church on Sundays. Right. So 
conservatism was Christianity as well, right? Um, and so I went. To, I even went to a, a private Christian college, um, and only after graduating did I was I, at the time I was like I need to figure out what you know denomination I I believe. So very tightly knit into Christianity, and so I ended up becoming um, Eastern Orthodox, which is you might laugh that's even more traditional in some senses than uh, a lot of the like evangelical christian denominations um but i i kind of took to it because it was like well it isn't directly literal so like i don't have to believe creationism specifically um it's all about mercy at the end of the day like the goal which isn't about like fear doesn't believe in a literal hell okay like i like all these things um but you know becoming that um i was also like well there's also these like very distinct gender roles now and i'm having issues with these because my husband isn't the same way and he's not he he's not really christian in this way and uh, he's not living up to this ideal so like this isn't what it's supposed to be and also like i don't like that they're saying women have to do one thing or the other like i'm not a big fan um but one thing that did help um change from a (laughs) non-denominational christian background to eastern orthodoxy was i got to separate the political from the religious for a second and i got to like actually go back and be like well now that i now that i'm not evangelical conservative what do i believe about political things and um i also have to think (laughs) and uh again very funny but i was i was partially radicalized um about abortion by listening to a religious podcast episode that was talking about well technically you know like early christian church fathers in the eastern orthodox church don't say that abortion is wrong like this is kind of a new thing like if we're supposed to be a church that's 2000 years old um why do we care about what's recent we should care about like what people have thought for the last 2000 years and it was like this is new this is different and this was like 2013 you know 2014 when i was like oh wow i don't have to believe that this is the only way um so i kind of got radicalized through like being able to differentiate the political from the religious um, and then that was a stepping stone to, to, um, when the time came taking that, you know, who do you stand with quiz at the beginning of 2015 and realizing like, oh yeah, I like 95% agree with Bernie on everything and have just a few di- percentage differences on, on a few things. That's weird. Um, and at that point that kind of got me into realizing like, okay, I was kind of anti-political now, but it just was because I didn't know what I liked. And now I kind of know what I like. And I'm also separating more from that very conservative religious aspect um and that kind of allowed me to become radical and be involved in the dsa which is a very strange story like i would i'm always like um interested in people who've been like oh yeah my parents were liberal and like my parents were leftist and i'm like oh how does that feel like how is that like so I'm, I'm like i don't know what that's like you got me i don't know you know what I, okay cool it's always it's always just interesting i'm like oh that's it seems so different like it's so to me that's just so foreign and so like interesting um, just because the, the background I had didn't, doesn't allow for that. Um, so I'm, I feel like I'm always new in this, like, yes, this is right. Like, I'm, but I'm always like, oh, am I saying this wrong? Do I think the wrong things? I just don't know it yet. Um, so a lot of this is, is still like learning, but, but also like, yeah, but I know, I know the basics, like everyone deserves equal rights. Everyone deserves healthcare. Everyone deserves to be loved and everyone deserves like things regardless of income and economic inequality. Like, doesn't matter. Okay. Basics done. Now we'll go into theory and more praxis. Thank you for sharing that story. That's amazing because I really, really strongly understand that in some ways. Um, Not 
in every way, but I really do think that there is a lot of kind of anti-religious bias in some in some circles about things and it's like no faith and spirituality and true understanding of christianity would you lead you down a leftist path i think i mean honestly that's how i've always felt about it because i've always been very appreciative of that and i grew up in a very kind of religious conservative environment i was born again christian when i was in high school and i didn't ultimately stay with the church because i really did not agree with any of the patriarchy or any of the conservatism at all um but i kept that idea of that the true understanding and, and love of people will guide you towards taking care of them and, and, and caring about your community, caring about people and empathizing with them and not wanting to push your religion or your ideas and beliefs on them, but to empathize and understand their experiences. So I think that's like a perfect way to actually utilize religion in the, in the positive way, you know? Can I ask a question? Yeah. And if Jeremy, if you don't like it, go for, no, feel free. It. Um, <laughs> So it sounds like, you know, the three of you all do have some kind of commonality in your experience, like, um, you know, Nikki with your your father and the police and, you know, then conservative Christian, you know, for you two. Um, do you, in your radicalization, have you been able to kind of talk across the table with family or do you just really put those differences aside and no talking about politics at Thanksgiving? Or, I mean, have you talked across the table? Do you see any progress for family or or former friends or do you just really put it aside at family time? No, I, I think personally, I've been very vocal about it. Um, my grandfather sent me a Ben Shapiro article yeah. uh, s stating that millennials don't understand about the Holocaust. And I was like, do you understand that this person is deliberately supporting neo-Nazis in our time and place? I could give you a million links if you ever send me anything like this again. I will not talk to you. And I mean, you can definitely have those conversations with people who are open to them. But when it comes to certain things, like there are limits. So you have to you have to set your boundaries, especially as a woman, because I feel like a lot of times I'm being patronized to by older male relatives. So if it's a if it's a you know family member that is open to hearing my experience, I will listen to their their perspectives. But I, you know, you just have to have a limit to it, right? I mean, feel free to crack a beer on here because, like, that's totally, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I have to crack a beer just thinking about it, right? I mean, sometimes it's like you really want to – it's hard because I think a lot of, too, for me, it's, like, socialization. I'm not – I've never been comfortable speaking my own mind. And to the point where I spent a lot of my time with really bad ideas and I didn't – really know what I was doing I was a I've talked a lot about this on this podcast but I was a horrifying libertarian stem believed that you know gender and race don't matter they don't exist you know we should be all about self you know like the American dream you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and I was even an objectivist it was horrible like but it coming from my background I can see where th those those yeah. seeds were planted and how I was inculcated in this idea that was so wrong and looking back on it, understanding where I came from, I feel sometimes helps me, at least I think so, helps me navigate the world of if you have a, a, a belief, can we talk it out? And I think that's sometimes important just to remember that these people don't necessarily have that perspective in order to really know that they're so wrong. But if they do, sometimes, you know, if you don't see other people as human and you don't see other people as human beings, which is something we deal with as women all the time, um, sometimes it's not worth talking to them. Sorry, that was a long rant. Oh, no. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> Passionate about it. 
No, no, please. We we encourage rants here. Yeah. Um, yeah, family's always weird. My family's definitely weird because it's like, so my family's multiracial. Um, a lot of people in my family are working class, some middle class, but, you know, and my family has a pretty wide array of politics. Like, some people have pretty conservative politics. I mean, my grandparents who are from the Philippines, like, they watch Fox News, like, all the time, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even though, you know, from my perspective, I'm like, that is completely against your interests, right? Like, as a like your entire being that is just but you know then there's other people in my family who are a little more like I, I would say the most left people in my family besides me go would be like the green party you know kind of like okay. that kind of thing um and yeah and then my biological father i haven't talked to in like 10 years so <laughs> but uh yeah i mean i definitely talk with my family a lot about this kind of stuff i mean everyone in my family knows me as like the communist, the whatever, like, the fuck, you know, that's Nikki. She just comes Same. and talks about whatever shit. Um, but, yeah, I feel like some people are receptive, some people aren't. It definitely depends. Um, you know, and, and, and it's complicated, but I think it is important a lot of the time. Because at the end of the day, you know, where you're starting from... You know, we're talking about organizing ourselves, you know, at the end of the day, we start from just like organizing with our coworkers, organizing with our neighbors, like organizing with the people in our immediate communities. And family can definitely be a part of that, you know, and it can be complicated, you know, um, especially for a lot of queer folks, for example, you know, like I'm queer, I'm lucky that my family's very accepting of me. Um, but a lot of people don't have that. And there's a lot of chosen family for people too. You know, I also spent a lot of my childhood hanging out with people who's you know, a lot of whose parents were on drugs, were alcoholics, you know, people didn't really have homes. We spent a lot of time together in the streets doing drugs ourselves in a lot of unsafe situations. Um, and a lot of those people ended up in different places, you know. Some of them have great politics now. Some of them are still in their old ways. Some of them ended up in jail, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so the conversation of family and just, like, the way that, that kind of influences us is definitely very complicated um and the ways that we build communities beyond that too i think is very important as well yeah um i know for me it's tricky because i'm not fully like my family kind of gets where i'm at a little politically but there's a lot towards my family i haven't really talked to them about um, yep 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 same yeah. here <laughs> yeah i mean i i don't really feel like i can a lot of times like i feel like i'd have to have like we're gonna all sit down and i'm gonna tell you and then we'll see what happens there might be who knows what the fallout will be? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't gotten to that point yet. Um, but in but another angle, um, which because you were asking about like talking to people and like w how people have navigated that, uh, who are conservatives, uh, it reminds me of the people that I went to the private Christian college went with because you know some of them have become more progressive or even socialist. Maybe they haven't come out as that to a lot of people that are in their circle of very conservative Christians and others have become very conservative Christian or very conservative. Um, very, I mean, either libertarian or, um, you know, neoconservative or even, even sort of fascist. Yeah, full um, on like dominionist stuff or something. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, we, we talked earlier about my background, but like, I, I didn't tell y'all that for a while I like was slightly monarchist. I was like, Obviously, if the Bible says that, like, rebelling against your masters is wrong, the Revolutionary War was wrong, so we should still be under Great Britain. You kind of sound like my Tradcast <laughs> yeah. friends in Britain that are, I mean, not my friends, but people I, I, I follow that are really 
odd you know oh yeah no no that was like me after a while i was like well the logic makes sense like i'll just yeah that's fine i mean at the same time that i was like potentially working on like a libertarian uh website so like it was very conflicting i didn't have my views under control um but like it's interesting seeing people especially especially uh as black lives matter started growing like in the in the christian circles like how did people respond because that i i saw that moment as the moment when people started dividing um in christian communities um and even just the conservative ones like some people would be like well gotta be more careful other people would be like no that i mean that's just wrong and like that started having in the like the conservative christian facebook groups and communities and friend circles like that was the fight like what was half a million with black lives matter and then after that everything just kind of like tumbled everything just kind of started falling from there um and more divides started happening but like in my perspective i'm totally down to talk with anyone about it and i feel like it gives me a good opportunity to understand already their perspective because i came from it so i can be like yeah i understand how you got there and why you think that um and like your reasoning in itself is valid if your if your worldview is that small i don't mean that condescendingly but like if you have that if your worldview is you know half the size of someone else's all the logic is consistent because you make it consistent it makes sense there's a madness in a small worldview Mm -hmm. but it's also a logical consistency so I, i don't have a problem arguing with people and discussing things with people i just have a problem if they're not actually willing to discuss right like if if they don't have it if they're not open to having a discussion and talking about possibilities i'm like well i can just push back against you because someone else needs to know it but you yourself are not going to move at least not right now that doesn't mean you can't and i've seen people change from like really drastic you know areas including myself um but it just means that maybe right now you won't and that's okay and it's on them and it's on them yeah Yeah, not on me yeah especially as a woman yeah (laughs) not on me to, to explain everything and argue with them yeah and i think we have to pick our battles too i mean and i think at the end of the day too i mean part of the reality of politics is we are going to have enemies like there are going to be people who aren't necessarily going to be persuaded or whatever especially like when we're talking about people like capitalists who hold a lot of power and stand a lot to lose um Mm -hmm. and so i think it is also an important thing to think about too is like when we're kind of talking about educating people and stuff who do we really want to be educating you know for me as a socialist feminist my answer is like members of the working class right because i see that as the revolutionary agent that is actually can make this world better yeah. mm-hmm. um you know i'm not interested in getting into a debate with like some millionaire billionaire <laughs> yeah, or sure. or somebody who's even a fascist right because for me it's like if a, if a fascist decides not to become a fascist that's great but also most people aren't fascist so yeah right it's probably better to start there um <laughs> You know, like, people talk a lot about, like, oh, how do you get, like, Trump supporters on, you know, to be more leftist or whatever. And it's, like, when you look at how the election actually went, like, most people didn't even vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that's a much more important demographic to be thinking about how to get it involved into, like, socialist movements than trying to convince Trump supporters, right? Yeah. Um, I think that also comes from an angle of, like... If I just think of the right thing to say, it can change your mind. Right. But most of the time, it's just the working conditions or the conditions of life that, like, change you. Like... Yeah. Yeah, I just I just don't think, like, the smartest thing or the most perfect line 
to say at a, a specific time or the perfect moment is going to make a difference. It's going to be the working conditions that lead up to it before then, or just the conditions lead up to it before then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we've talked about this in our Medicare for All episode about how the idea of canvassing is always relating on a personal experience. Finding that connection with another human being that is so fundamental and visceral, you know, asking that question, um, have, you, have you or any of your other family suffered through something like this? Even if it's not even directly related, what is this thing that has hurt you and harmed you about the world? And how would you like to see it changed? And would you be interested in changing it? And that is so powerful. And you can actually, you can activate people so easily that way because when they start to realize that it is worthy of changing and it can be changed, because I think a lot of that election was about the idea that things were just going to be the same and perpetuate. Mm -hmm. And we were never going to be able to change the system as it was. But if you've been looking at the world since that election happened, we've been changing a lot. A lot of things, even if they don't have a direct political moment within our own circles or our own like praxis, like something like the Me Too movement, where people don't tolerate that, you know, the, the general idea that this is just what happens anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing this slow shift in culture, which I think is important. And I think we need to take advantage of that fully to and to wake people up a little bit more. Something I'd left out of my kind of personal bio is that I studied journalism and really thought I wanted to be a, a journalist. And one of the things that really drew me to that was the basic concept of um, helping give voice to the voiceless. And I think at the end of the day, when it's talking to people one on one through canvassing or even like, you know, you bring up like the Me Too movement, it is really helping, you know, give rise to those voices and helping show people like your vote makes a difference. You speaking up makes a difference. Like you have a place in this community. And I think that something that I really struggle with and one of the things that inspired me to even ask about you know talking across the table with family or others is um, I feel that recently I've been very shamed in conversation about idealism and I just think that you know if we're all a little more idealistic together you know we can all see that that brighter future mm -hmm. and build that better world together but it does really uh, I think require helping people to see that voice and even and I think that even just starts with a vote yeah yeah you don't have to fully believe. You just have to do this one small thing, you know. Yeah, it's got it, it's kind of in like seeing it as a tactic of the uh, like a, you know in in terms of a you know strategy or a tactic to employ at the moment. It's kind of the the um, here in Oregon, the uh, certain things like the Democratic primaries are closed, which means to vote in them you need to register as a Democrat. Mm -hmm. The kicker is that there is a lot of I don't necessarily say signaling, but there's a lot. It seems like a lot more brouhaha around, you know, people whether they have it like registered as a certain thing or not. And my take on it was like, you know, you, you know, we we don't have Euro, we don't have European style parties here. It's kind of it's a you know, it, all it is is like it's a uh, it's just some it, it's some, you know it's some it, it's it's a letter stored in a database somewhere that lets you vote in certain elections. So it's like. Declare, you, know, you want to declare a party uh, just if nothing else, just to at least you know have some say in uh, in like how this in how the selections yeah, work. Yeah, I hate to break it to you, but you can't vote for a pirate here, so may as well vote for a Democrat because it's the lesser of evils. And and I'm not, not like a lesser of evils. You know, typically, if we work on a local level, we've been working. I think DSA has been the best example of working on a local level to institute change in different areas. You know, we have some very radical changes happening in New York right now. 
you know, we're just, it's really good to see. And, and that visibility is important for, you know, the normies like my parents and even yeah. though my parents moved to a socialist country. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would say to give another perspective about that, um, you know, personally, I'm very against the democratic party. Um, you know, I think like another thing we want to talk about too, when we're talking about, you know, like obvi- obviously like we can use voting and stuff as a tool in certain cases and like for sure. But I really, you know, I think we really don't want to end the conversation there. I mean, mm-hmm. I think like it's important to remember that like most people in the working class like don't vote and don't feel mm-hmm. that voting often reflects, you know, their needs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a bunch of barriers to voting for a lot of people and stuff like that. And I think that as socialists, we also need to be talking about like, how do we build up the, you know, workers self capacity for self organization, right? How do we get people to band together in their workplaces and demand more from their bosses to mm-hmm. kind of yes. take these direct actions and build power in their communities mm-hmm. um, so that we can influence things ourselves. So I think when we're, you know, obviously we talk about kind of the necessity of maybe like at times having to navigate these political systems, but I think we also want to be talking about how do we kind of build institutions for workers beyond that right Mm -hmm. outside of that that aren't just kind of like caught up in that democratic party network but is actually going to serve our interests because at the end of the day i don't think the democratic party is going to serve us i think maybe some socialists you know may attempt to try to use that but even then we see folks who do come in with that intent and they get pushed further to the right just by virtue of being Mm -hmm. in that circle just by virtue of how that party structure kind of limits what is possible there. Yeah, the institutional, it be, they've been institutionalized. Mm-hmm. It's just part of playing the game in a system that's already broken. Mm-hmm. And we need to recognize that the reason why we don't have power is, again, because this community that exactly what you're saying, in, especially in our workplaces, we're so frac- fractured and, and compartmentalized in those spaces that we're unable to push for our own freedom from them. So. Yeah, I guess it's like a big thing when I think about socialist feminism organizing is I think like, you know, how do we build our own power and not just rely on the power of the state, not just rely on the power Mm -hmm. of whatever occasional politician or billionaire is going to maybe make concessions to us. But how do we have our own power that's only accountable to us? Right. And it's a hard situation. I mean, where we are in the U.S., we're really building up a socialist movement from the ground. Right. Like. We have such a huge history of anti-communism, all this stuff that, you know, it's really an uphill battle. But I think we need to kind of take that seriously in that, you know, we can't just hope to kind of come in and just like take the base of the Democratic Party. You know, we have to kind of build our own base for our own movement um, and build our own power in that way. And that the, how we do that is obviously a very long conversation. But, uh, yeah. you know, I think the work that people are doing around here and just kind of like informing people you know, and building our own, like, you know, ensuring greater access for people with abortions, you know, fighting for our communities in this way, like, that's where we start, right? And we mm-hmm. keep trying to build that power, we keep trying to build our capacity, to get other people plugged in, who weren't organizing before in their workplaces and their neighborhoods. And yeah, excellent. All right. And on that note, we'll take a quick break and be back to uh, do recommendations and wrap up the show. You know, we have this history where people think socialists, they think communists, right? They uh-huh. have these negative connotations, but those are the connotations we want to build right. up, right? We want them to think, oh, socialists, 
these are the people who are going to stand with me when my boss is ripping me off. These are right. the people who are going to help me when my landlord's being an asshole. Right. And so like, like the yeah. Break, like clinic, like people doing that, like bottom up um, organization. Definitely. Or not, not even organizing, but just like acted like activism or activities like the break light clinic or like the the wage justice clinic or like anything like that i feel like that's a that's a better way like making sure people have food yeah community like, gardens and yeah, yeah. like it's I, I i struggle because i'm like okay we have to do that and then we also have to do medicare for all so like i'm in this like weird thing where i'm like we have to ensure everyone has health care we also have to do stuff at the local like ground up level absolutely and it's like this weird conundrum like you mentioned earlier diversity of tactics and I, right. th I think that is right and you also yeah at some point you get really close you start getting into the split between um more of a marxist take on it versus more of an anarchist take sure. on it so and mm -hmm. i i am solidly not either i feel like i'm definitely um focusing on on um trying to do both for, for better or for worse right now mm -hmm. maybe that's maybe that's a flaw no i don't think it's a flaw at all i think it's like to go on to like shitty military tactics you need a pincher attack on things you know you can't just attack things from one side you have to definitely look at it like how do we involve people where it's a personal experience where you're helping them and then they realize that they can help other people's quite easily like it's it's not that difficult you know for someone with like me with social anxiety and my own mental health issues like mm -hmm. i have a hard time getting out the door and even just talking to people mm -hmm. um but you know being able to give them options to say, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, is important. Yeah. And I, that's one of the things I do love about, like, DSA work. Um, we're all part of DSA, to some extent. Yes, we are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, to some extent. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're fine. I I'm just, not an official member, but I love the work you all do, and I work. Yeah, you, know, you, you work that. with us. Yeah. You come to meetings, you're fine. Yeah. I think you are a member of DSA. Yeah, okay? for sure. Even if you don't, not a card-carrying, I yeah. think if you are supporting the movement in any way that you can, I think... It should be important to make sure that people mm -hmm. understand that because, like, I think for a lot of people, they do fear the whole organizational aspect of it or, you know, feeling like it would become a burden or a requirement on their lives. No, it's not going to be that difficult. Like, even if you're just understanding the issues and trying to support them in any way that you can, that is part of a movement. Definitely. Yeah. All right. And and on that note, uh, bringing things to uh, start to conclusion, uh, one of the recurring things. I'm good. Oh, we can okay. do recommendations. Okay. Then. Um, I don't want to mess with the the mojo of the. <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. no messing with mojo here. It's yeah. very conversational. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't really have. All, we don't really all have right. reg format or segments. This is the closest thing we have to like a regular segment. I like it. But um, one of the uh, one of the regular things that we that we try to bring on each episode or ask each guest if you have anything that you like to recommend or endorse or so, something you've been digging on lately that you like to share uh, to others and have them check out too. Uh, who's first? This could be like anything from you know band band movie uh, book. Act I mean, at one point Garrett, you know, Garrett recommended a line of guitars. So it's uh, <laughs> nice. and I think and I think Jacob was like, uh, I recommend Photoshop. That's it, just Photoshop. <laughs> I'll go first because mine's like super light bubblegum pop bullshit and I feel like others might be heavy. So <laughs> start, we'll start with the fun. Yes. Um, so I can't believe I'm going to recommend this, but I have recently gone down an internet video K-hole of a series that is produced by 
Funny or Die, who I don't endorse, but I love this fucking video series, and it's called Zach Morris is Trash. And what it does is it breaks down um, Saved by the Bell episodes, pointing out the incredibly <laughs> terrible, like Machiavellian, like awful, oh, manipulative ways that Zach Morris yeah. takes advantage of his friends. Zach Morris is Trash. Zach Morris wants to go to a Dodgers game, but can't come up with a good excuse to miss school. He was going to say his grandma died, but he already said that four times last year. Zach's math teacher, who is so Jewish, he actually says, I'm Jewish. Yikes. Reminds everyone that Rosh Hashanah is tomorrow and he'll be at home. That gives Zach the bright idea to lie about being Jewish on one of the holiest days of the year just to go watch baseball. Also, he thinks of a menorah, which isn't even the right holiday, but whatever. Meanwhile, Jesse has a shitty new stepbrother, Eric, from New York, who watches a tape of the game, sees Zach catch a foul ball in the crowd, and blackmails Zach for the most petty shit the baseball he caught in trading lockers. And instead of handing over the baseball and lockers, Zach hatches an insanely elaborate reverse blackmail scheme. Zach bribes Lisa with MC Hammer tickets to go on a date with Eric, who by the way has been stalking and harassing Lisa for days. And I just think that if you really want to break it down, you could absolutely make it like a symbol for just capitalism and the way it takes advantage of all of us while dressing it up like I love you and you're my friend and I'll care for you. So Zach Morris is trash. Amazing. Very entertaining. Uh, it's a lot of good internet viewing if you just want to get really silly. And also if you watched uh, Saved by the Bell growing up, then it may also be very nostalgic for you as well. Awesome. I will I will go watch this. <laughs> I will too. Uh, quick, quick recommendation to tag on that. Um, April Richardson is a stand-up who for the longest time ran a podcast called Go Bayside where her and a guest, probably one of the best guests was always was Paul F. Tompkins and there were several there. I love him. Uh, would go through and they wa they rewatch the show in order and just kind of marveled at how, you know, it's like how do they how did they how did they get away with airing this crap, you know? It's mm -hmm. yes, it, it's 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 very funny. It is she did it for like God, like two or three years. So there's uh there is a lot of uh, there's a there's a it's a great archive to go back through, so uh, that's April Richardson's uh, show called Go Bayside, and she has another show out with it. I think that show, and she started another podcast with she and her, I think, a friend or two, just kind of like just bullshit about whatever, call it, um, oh, God, I can't remember, Assorted Issues. I remember it was, it was like, it was your show, her show called, I thought I was going to say it was called Struggle Session. Like, no, that's another show, I think. Uh -huh. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so, yes, uh, thank you for, thank you for the, uh, thank you for the suggestion. Thank you, John. Sure. I have two recommendations. Um, the first one is become a socialist. That's my recommendation. Yes. Um, yeah, you, you know, go to your neighbors, go to your coworkers, figure out shit that's fucked up in your community and start finding ways that you can all work together to fix it. Um, my second recommendation, um, I am a big literature nerd. I just love literature. Um, I got my degree in world literature and cultural studies. Um, I'm currently reading a book by Jordy Rosenberg called Confessions of the Fox. And it's a really awesome retelling of the story of Jack Shepard, the famous thief. It's retelling the story of him as a trans man. And uh, it's basically taking 18th century literature and mixing it with some marks and some queerness. And uh, it's really great. So if you're at all into just reading good books, um, fun fiction, and or if you're a literature nerd like me, definitely check that out. Excellent. That's awesome. I'm excited to read that. So my recommendation is for Black Klansmen. I went to see it with a large group of friends, including one that was visiting from Alberta, Canada. And it was a highly entertaining movie. It is a 
retelling a non it's a definitely a fictional version of non-fiction events in terms of the first black police detective in Colorado infiltrating the KKK. A dramatization. Dramatization, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, they do it in a really interesting and very metatextual way, and it was extremely emotionally jarring in a good way. So they definitely have this element of humor and fun to it, but they also have very poignant, very emotionally resonant sequences where they're showing the reaction of the people dealing with the racism that is endemic to our country and kind of setting it up as here is where we began and here is where we are. And to the point where I left the film shaking and crying and I ran into a coworker who was doing the same thing and I've never had a conversation with her really, but seeing her in the same state and getting to kind of like go, okay, yeah, this is what we've been through was really, really important. And um, not to spoil the film in any way, but they do touch on the events of Charlottesville. And, of course, this movie came out on the anniversary of Charlottesville. And I think that it's really important because for one of, for my personal experience, I was extremely radicalized by that event. Um, I went through a lot around that period, realizing that our country was so insanely fucked up. <laughs> you know, like, I think we all kind of had a little bit of a moment there where we understood that things require active emotive energy to go out and to confront these things and um it's it's hard to deal with because i think a lot of it is how can we affect change and how can we do this in a way that's safe for people like for women or for people of color because it's very difficult for us because i think you know that you are a target or that you are someone that can die in these situations quite easily unfortunately in this country so um yeah, I think it's a really great way to experience the history of racism in our country and also to uh, just understand the current events and how they led to where we are now and how it is systemic and endemic and that the only way that we can fight this is definitely socialism, for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to continue on that sort of theme. Um, I, I'm actually going to cheat and add two recommendations as well, though. So but the first one um, is... Uh, documenting hate it's a new frontline pbs documentary that's um, available on pbs.org i believe and on youtube and it is an hour long and it starts at charlottesville and um it is a frontline um reporter who goes and starts investigating what happened and how it happened and people that were there um it's fantastic and incredible and dark and rough and weird seeing people you know there too um i i find it slightly also more interesting in a weird way because um so i I moved up here recently from orange county california and um they spend a lot of time in orange county california um talking about um one of the movements they talk about is a white supremacist movement called the rise against movement ram um who definitely was there in charlottesville was there in berkeley um, was in Huntington Beach, California, and um, I know was there in San Bernardino because they were across the street most of the time, and it was just weird to be to learn about their history and who they're from and realize like, okay, yeah, like I I we knew about these guys like before this came out and like how dangerous it were. We just didn't know quite how dangerous, and now it's like oh, we were real close a few times to like 
inner anti-fascist like protesting to to being to dealing with people like this um and it's rough and it's dangerous and like Charlottesville was like i know when august 4th came around came around like Charlottesville was on everyone's mind because it's just so so close to the date and also like god please don't let anyone die yeah. <laughs> please like please please just keep everyone safe and like strangely enough we had to deal with the police the most of the time um but and thankfully people were wearing helmets um but i but i think that i need to watch black Klansmen, and i recommend that people watch documented hate for the like look at who the people are currently behind a lot of these movements and where they're at um i'll say on a lighter note my other recommendation um is the other documentary won't you be my neighbor about mr rogers i don't know if anyone's seen it not yet no it's wonderful and it makes you cry yeah in a good way Mm -hmm. um I'll, i'll say that one of the things that um they talk about is mr rogers like first week he ran a bunch of episodes about um the King Charlie, I believe, in the land of make believe, <laughs> building a wall around his castle and keeping the other people out. And this was in like the sixties. And then uh the other people sent balloons with like notes with pr- nice happy words on them over, and he's like, Tear down the wall. Fire the cannon! Fire the cannon! Fire the cannon, man your stations, fire the cannon. What, what is it, King Friday? Edgar! Parrot troopers! Edgar, man the cannon! Edgar! Edgar the cannon! What is it? Just, just read the bottom of them before you read the bottom. Before you start shooting. Hold it, Edgar. Hold it, King Friday. What is your name, <laughs> rank, and serial number, lady? Oh, great Uncle Friday, you know my name. It's Lady Aberlin. Just, oh, just read the bottom of the signs. Won't Look you? at this, King Friday. Well, what is it? Parrot troopers have their messages of peace. Look at this. Tenderness. Messages of peace? Peaceful coexistence. Isn't that marvelous? They're peaceful messages, sir. Well, stop all fighting. Peaceful coexistence. Stop all fighting now. Oh, 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 my, that is such a surprise. And it was just like, wow, okay, like this was something Mr. Rogers was dealing with 60 years ago, and we're still dealing with it now. But it also means that, like, people can instill that sort of idealism that you mentioned earlier and that sort of, like, care and love of people as individuals just as they are um and at the end of the day as our neighbors excellent thank you very much yeah i'm sorry you're good and uh last but not least i'll recommend a book it's a couple years old called playing the whore uh very uh the work of sex work by melissa gira grants one of the books that was put out between jacobin and verso um it's 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 i think it's it's came out in 2014 so you know things hadn't gotten as bad yet but you could but in her writing you can definitely she's she covers a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that was coming both like the sista foster uh, legislation mm-hmm. and even i think getting the like a lot of um a lot of more censorious uh, parts of society using human trafficking as a what shield excuse whatever you want to call it to go after uh you know um, any sort of sex work legal Mm -hmm. or illegal or anything improper and we in this all the stuff that has been happening lately started and uh started down in like new orleans too but that is that's a whole other episode yeah i i would actually want to say that like one of the things i would have loved to touch on today and i would love to have another episode on is is specifically on sex work 
because I feel like a lot of the conversation around that has been muddled by obviously media and people's misunderstanding of it Mm -hmm. and I think it's one of those things where we really really need to put a focus on it because people are dying because of yeah because of the the legislation that's happening now so agree excellent if anyone would you if if you would like to uh how can folks get a hold of you if you uh if you want to be if you if you want to be contacted online or or do you have anything you'd any anything you want to plug (laughs) I'm on Twitter. Um, it's an old nickname from like middle school, but it's spelled B E C K E R A C A C H I. Sorry, Beccarachi. Um, so yeah, you can find me on Twitter there. Um, probably the best way to contact me if you want to follow. And um, I don't have every anything to plug other than go watch the films and become a socialist. Anybody else there? No, not no. <laughs> Just come to a DSA meeting and you can meet us in person. <laughs> yeah, I actually don't have any social media anymore, but I'm very open to emails, especially if you are interested in learning more about how to engage with our DSA chapter here. Um, as a mobilizer, I'd love to sit down with you over a beer or a coffee or you know whatever and chat about how you can plug in. So I'm very open to emails at S-C-H-R-E-C-S-N at gmail.com thank you anything to hear uh yeah i mean i would definitely say like yeah support dsa like there's lots of great organizations in portland uh don't shoot portland's another one that comes Mm -hmm. to mind uh you know definitely um you know if you're interested in disability justice stuff that's also a big thing that i do with uh disability art and culture project also with uh reject economic ableist limits um so look up either of those groups you can find out and get involved with our work if you're interested in that too because uh yeah i mean this kind of anti-capitalist struggling also is very important for disabled communities um and that's a conversation for another time but definitely look into our work if you're interested thank you so much thanks yeah thanks you can find me at ashes for foxes on twitter i'm really sorry don't follow me i just have a lot of dumb stuff I talk about and uh, but do follow my podcast <laughs> seriously uh, we try um, we're at Metamachina M-E-T-A-M-A-S-H-I-N-A that's Machina in Russian Machine in Russian and uh, we're leftist socialists talking about genre fiction down to talking about fairy tales or Disney movies but we're trying to understand the place and time that they came from and deconstruct that and then I'll also say how media currently is dealing with the world from that perspective so excellent and as always you can get a hold of the show uh email in comments suggestions questions baking tips uh recommendations for good <laughs> korean places to eat to eat in please. portland i need more, more, more bulgogi please yeah please. um and good mexican food plate for oh uh, god yeah seriously anyway yeah find Dangerous. us online uh giving the mic at gmail.com on twitter giving the mic uh, if you could uh we do have a patreon and you too can help contribute to help us make the show or at least help pay for uh bandwidth costs buy some new mics and also soundcloud does charge for you to upload more often than three hours a month so. that's that this 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 is true yeah the uh soundcloud uh, that's the soundcloud bill does exist so we're at that patreon.com slash giving the mic um that is uh once again uh th- thanks thanks to you all for for coming out tonight and uh spending 
good couple hours uh, talking about pretty uh, important and, and heavy topics. Um, any uh, any any last words? <laughs> we live in a hell world apocalypse because you can tell in Portland right now the sun is red every day. There's a haze over the entire city, but there are still still good people in here trying to do good things. And always, always, always remember that. Power to the people, power to the working class. Nazi punks, fuck off. <laughs> yes, yes. And reproductive justice and healthcare is healthcare. Rock. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Good night. night. And we're out. There we go. Thank you very much, ladies Thank and gentlemen. That's great. If this is your first time, welcome to the wonderful world of podcasts. Yeah. <laughs>
like all mm-hmm. the kind of fun mm-hmm. stuff is like in South Whidbey. It's super weird. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's a really weird, like, cause it's not a small island. It's a big no, it's island, but island. the North End is like super, super rich. It's very rich and it's, that's where the military base is. Yeah. So uh-huh. that's where if we wanted to like shop at a Walmart or like go yeah. to the movie theater, that's where we had to go. Yeah. And then the middle is just like all very rural cow land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the South End is like pretty hippie turned yuppie. Yeah. Most like for me growing up, like most men commuted off the island to either oh. Boeing or Microsoft. Yep. And then most like wives, I mean, I'm just, it's super like, they would just that's actually literally just stay the there. Yeah. They stayed there and they, if they had jobs, like worked for the local grocery or were like a part of the school It's super district. hard to keep, it's super, it. super expensive to commute off that island. It's crazy since especially now. So when I was yeah. growing up, so, so my dad worked for we Boeing growing, yeah. before he got um, laid off mm-hmm. when I was, I think like eight, but he, um, you used to be able to like park a car on the Everett side yeah. or the Muckleteo side. Yeah. Um, and so you just had to pay the walk across price, which you only did one way, which yeah. back then was like three bucks. Yeah. Um, and so, he, but then they even did away with that lot, the commuter lot. So now everyone has to drive both ways. Yeah. It's crazy expensive. It's an extreme privilege to even be able to leave yeah. the island, frankly, because Jeez. the ferry boats are so expensive. It's messed up. And the Whidbey Island ferry boats actually the cheapest of the island is, ferries yeah. or like the, you Fair know, system, yeah. the ferry system in Washington. Some of the other ferries are like over a hundred bucks yeah. just to leave your Sorry. island. Yeah. I don't. It's it's ins- a weird horrible. way of being. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a really strange upbringing. I mean, I graduated high school with the exact same kids I like went to kindergarten with. Like, yeah. And there was, I mean, just no diversity. And I remember like yeah, opening... Washington's the whitest state ever. We had yeah. like one black kid in Monroe, Washington, and it was like yes. <laughs> it was insane. Yes, we had he was in a punk rock band. You know, he was like I just have right. To... Yes. Deal. We had a, we had, yeah, one, one black kid in my whole high school and he was adopted. Yeah. So he was like super just, yeah. you know, Caucasian wow. culturally. And then I remember sadly, like we had one kid who came out very publicly as gay and he was like Bullied. mocked out of the school. Like he oh had to leave the school and homeschool throughout yeah. because he was, he felt so unsafe. Yeah. And I remember he wrote a letter to the editor in our newspaper explaining why he was leaving and how terrible it was for him. And I had a psychology class at the time that I was a junior when this happened. And this fucking psychology teacher talked all about how, well, if you put a target on your back, what do you expect? Like, if you show up wearing a feather boa, of course, like, boys are going to make fun of you because boys don't dress that way. It's like, fuck. And actually, one of my greatest shames and regrets in life like I didn't didn't speak up I didn't say anything I just kind of was like I knew it was fucked up but I was like I just didn't speak to authority that way at the time and now I'm just like fuck you and I since like reached out to that person and been like I'm I'm, I I was like pretty friendly with him I'm just like dude I'm so sorry this was your experience and I'm like ashamed that more of us didn't stand up for you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really up. hard in those small, like I, my, my graduating class is 300 people. And I mean, almost all of my friends, all of my friends who are queer came out after, mm-hmm. way after, cause they were so terrified of that. Cause it was a very Christian mm-hmm. rural mm-hmm. environment where you, you know, I, I used to read tarot in school and I got like yelled at and like witch. exercise <laughs> in yeah. by, by somebody oh I was God. friends with because I was actually really good friends with a bunch of mm. Christians, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. Was, it was, was a too. weird time. Yeah, it was. You're just trying to survive, you know? I know. It's and just... everyone is. I was just trying to like fly under the radar. I yeah. just wanted to get out of there so bad. Yeah. I've like never gone back for more than two days since I moved out at 18. 
like Christmas. I'm like, Mom, you get Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, I'm out. Yep. Like, that's it. Bye. <laughs> and For even sure. now, I'm like, nah, fuck that. I stopped doing that even a couple of years ago. I'm well, like, I hate going back and seeing how just sad it is. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of my friends still live there and oh, yeah. they work in the same places yep. 15 years later. Yep. And I'm like, why? Yeah. It's a thing where I'm from that like, I have a ton of friends who married the person they started dating in seventh grade, same, freshman year. Same. And even I remember, like, so I followed my college or my high school boyfriend to college. <laughs> and when I broke up with him, my friends were like, well, how are you going to meet like a nice island guy now? And I'm like, I've met all the island guys. I'm not interested. Yeah. I know them all. Yeah. No, no. No. I'm looking to get the fuck away from that yeah. shit. Like, does wow. anybody does anybody have any hard outs uh time-wise not really no. okay just um, want to make sure like 8 30 should be awesome that's cool okay. you know yeah. it, we should be we should we be done long before then so yeah. yeah i just want i just cool. didn't just want to make sure no one needed to like leave in like 14 minutes or something so no okay just want, just want to make sure 